Tarka the Otter by Henry Williamson Read by Lucia Cox Chapter 1 The First Year Twilight over meadow and water, the eve star shining above the hill, and old Nog the heron crying crack as his slow dark wings carried him down to the estuary. A whiteness drifting above the sere reeds of the riverside, for the owl had flown from under the middle arch of the stone bridge that once had carried the canal across the river. Below Canal Bridge, on the right bank, grew twelve great trees with roots awash. Thirteen had stood there, eleven oaks and two ash trees, but the oak nearest the North Star had never thriven. Since first a pale green hook had pushed out of a swelled black acorn left by floods on the bank more than three centuries before. In its second year, a bullock's hoof had crushed the seedling, breaking its two ruddy leaves, and the sapling grew up crooked. The cleft of its fork held the rains of two hundred years until frost made a wedge of ice that split the trunk. Another century's weather wore it hollow, while every flood took more earth and stones from under it. And one rainy night, when salmon and peel from the sea were swimming against the brown rushing water, the tree had suddenly groaned. Every root carried the groans of the moving trunk, and the voles ran in fear from their tunnels. It rocked until dawn. And when the wind left the land, it gave a loud cry, scaring the white owl from its roost, and fell into the river as the sun was rising. Now the water had dropped back, and dry sticks lodged on the branches marked the top of the flood. The river flowed slowly through the pool, a glimmer with the clear green western sky. At the tail of the pool, it quickened smoothly into pores of water, with star-streaming claws. The water murmured against the stones. Jets and rills ran fast and shallow to an island, on which grew a leaning willow tree. Down from here, the river moved swift and polished. Alder and sallow grew on its banks. Round a bend it hastened, musical over many stretches of shillet. At the end of the bend it merged into a dull silence of deep salt water, and its bright spirit was lost. The banks below were mud, channered by the sluices of guts draining the marsh. Every twelve hours the sea passed an arm under Halfpenny Bridge, a minute's heron flight below and the spring tides felt the banks as far as the bend. The water moved down again immediately, for the tide's head had no rest. The tree lay black in the glimmering salmon pool. Over the meadow, a mist was moving, white and silent as the fringe of down on the owl's feathers. 
Since the fading of shadows, it had been straying from the wood beyond the mill leet, bearing in its breath the sense of the day when bees had blended bluebell and primrose. Now the bees slept and mice were running through the flowers. Over the old year's leaves, the vapour moved, silent and wan, the wraith of waters once filling the ancient wide riverbed. Men say that the sea's tides covered all this land when the Roman galleys drifted up under the hills. Earth trickled by the gap in the bank to the broken roots below. Voles were at work, clearing their tunnels, scraping new shafts and galleries, biting the rootlets which hindered them. An otter, curled in the dry upper hollow of the fallen orc, heard them, and uncurling, shook herself on four short legs. Through a woodpecker's hole above her, she saw the star cluster of the hunting dogs as faint points of light. She was hungry. Since noon, the otter had lain there, sometimes twitching in sleep. The white owl alighted on the upright branch of the tree, and the otter heard the scratch of its talons as they gripped the bark. She looked from the opening, and the brush of her whiskers on the wood was heard by the bird, whose ear holes, hidden by feathers, were as large as those of a cat. The owl was hearkening, however, for the prick of claws of mice on leaves, and when it heard these tiny noises, it stared until it saw movement, and with a skirling screech that made the mouse crouch in a fixity of terror, sailed to the ground and clutched it in a foot. The otter gave but a glance to the bird. She was using all her senses to find enemies. She stood rigid. The hair on her back was raised. Her long tail was held straight. Only her nose moved as it worked at the scents brought by the mist from the wood. Mingled with the flower odours, which were unpleasant to her, was the taint that had given her a sudden shock causing her heart to beat quickly for power of running and fighting if cornered. The taint most dreaded by the otters who wandered and hunted and played in the country of the two rivers, the scent of Deadlock, the great pied hound with the beveling tongue, leader of the pack whose kills were notched on many hunting poles. The otter had been hunted that morning. Deadlock had chopped at her pate and his teeth had grooved a mark in her fur. She ran over a stony and shallow. The pack had been whipped off when the master had seen that she was heavy with young and she had swum away down the river and hidden in the hollow of the water-lapped trunk. The mist moved down with the river. Her heart slowed. She forgot quickly. She put her head and shoulders under water, holding her breath, and steadying herself by pressing her tail, which was thick and strong and tapered from where her backbone ended, against the rough bark. She was listening, 
and watching for fish. Not even the voles peeping from their holes again heard the otter as she slid into the water. Her dark form came within the inverted cone of waterlight, wherein movement above was visible to a trout waving fins and tail behind a sunken bow. While the otter was swimming down to the rocky bed, she saw the glint of scales as the fish sped in zigzag course to its cave. The otter was six feet under the surface, and at this depth her eyes, set level with the short fur of the head, could detect any movement above her in the water lit by star rays. She could see about four times her own length in front, but beyond all was obscure, for the surface reflected the dark bed of the river. Swimming above the weeds of the pool, she followed the way of the trout, searching every big boulder. She was way wise in the salmon pool. In underwater pursuit, her acute sense of smell was useless, for she could not breathe. She peered around the rocks and in every cave in the bank. She swam without haste in a slow and easy motion, with kicks of her thick webbed hind feet and strokes of her tail, which she used as a rudder to swing herself up or down or sideways. She found the fish under an ash tree root, and as it tried to dart away over her head, she threw herself sideways and backwards and seized it in her teeth. By obeying the bank, broken and beaten by the hooves of cattle going to drink, she ate her prey, holding it in her forepaws and crunching with her head on one side. She ate to the tail, which was left on a wad of drying mud cast from a hoof. And she was drinking a draught of water when a whistling cry came from under Canal Bridge. It had a thin, hard, musical quality and carried far down the river. She answered gladly, for it was the call of the dog otter with whom she had mated nearly nine weeks before. He had followed her down from the weir by the scent lying in her seals or footprints left on many scours and on the otter path across the meadowland of the river's bend. He swam in the deep water, hidden except for his nose, which pushed a ream on the surface, placid in the windless night. As she watched the ream became a swirl, the otter on land heard the instant hiss of breath in the nostrils before they sank. Immediately she slipped into the river with the least ripple tracing where she'd entered. The dog otter had sniffed the scent of a fish. Bubbles began to rise in the pool, making two chains with silver-pointed links, which moved steadily upstream. Twenty yards above the swirl, which lingered as the sway of constellations between black branches, a flat, wide head fierce with whiskers, looked up and went under again. The top of a back following in the down-going curve so smooth that the bubbles rising after it 
were just rocked. Time of breathing in was less than half a second. The bubbles, eking out of nostrils, ran over pate and neck and shook off between the shoulders to rise in clusters the size of hawthorn pegles. The dog otter was swimming with his forelegs tucked against his chest. Near the bridge, the bubbles rose large as oak apples. He was kicking four webs together, having sighted the fish. The bubbles ended in another swirl by a weed-fringed sterling, and a delicate, swift water arrow shot away between the two piers of the middle arch. The peel, or sea trout, had gone down, passing three inches off the snapped jaws. The river became silent again, save where it murmured by root and rock. Old Nog, the heron, alighted by a drain behind the seawall of the marsh two miles below Halfpenny Bridge, whither he had straightly flown. The white owl had just caught, by an old straw rick, its second mouse, which, like the first, caught five minutes before, was swallowed whole. Where water clawed the stones at the tail of the pool, the peel leapt to save itself from the bigger enemy, ever trudging and peering behind it. It fell on the shillets on its side and flapped once, then lay still, moving only its gills. Then the dog otter was standing by it, holding up his nose to sniff the air when a thin, wavy, snarling cry rose out of the water. It was the bitch's yinny-yacker, or threat. She ran upon the fish, pulled it away from the dog, who was not hungry, and started to eat. While she was chewing the bones and flesh of the head, the dog played with a stone, and only when she had turned away from the broken fish did he approach and lick her face in greeting. Her narrow, lower jaw dropped in a wide yawn which showed the long canine teeth curved backwards for holding fish and kept white by the strength of bites. The yawn marked the end of a mood of anxiety. The dog had caught and eaten a peel on his journey and was ready for sport and play, but the bitch did not follow him into the water. She felt the stir of her young, snarled at the dog in sudden fear and turned away from the water. She ran over the bullock's drinking place and passed through willows to the meadow, seeking old dry grasses and mosses under the hawthorns growing by the millet, and gathering them in her mouth with wool pulled from the overarching blackberry brambles whose prickles had caught in the fleeces of sheep. She returned to the riverbank and swam with her webbed hind feet to the oak tree, climbed to the barky lip of the halt, and crawled within. Two yards inside, she strewed her burden on the wood dust and departed by water for the dry, sand-coloured reeds of the old summer's growth, which she bit off, frequently pausing to listen. After several journeys, she sought trout by cruising underwater along the bank 
and roach, which he found by stirring up the sand and stones of the shallow wherein they lurked. The whistles of the dog were sometimes answered, but so anxious was she to finish making the couch in the hollow tree that she left off feeding while still hungry and ran over the water meadow to an inland pond for the floss of reed maces which grew there. On the way, she surprised a young rabbit, killing it with two bites behind the ear and tearing the skin in her haste to feed. Later in the night, the badger found the head and feet and skin as he lumbered after slugs and worms and chewed them up. Thank you.